Five weeks ago, we were at the end of Colossians chapter 1, and we will pick up where we left off. Uh, We did a class on the theology of light for our Christmas season, and then we took a little break, and then I got sick. So here we are, five weeks later. I'm sure you're completely up to speed and have Colossians completely memorized so that I don't need to do any introduction at all. But maybe I do. Now technically, we ended our session last time at the end of chapter 1, including verses 28 and 29. But we tend to forget that the Bible is not written in chapters. It's written in books, or in this case, a letter, a full letter. The chapters in the Bible were added to the Bible in what year? Anybody know? After Christ. Very good. That's very helpful, Philip. After Christ, yes. Um, It was in the year 1205. So for the first 1,200 years of the church, there were no chapters in the Bible, and there were no verses. So when were the verses added? The verse breaks, I should say. The Old Testament, there's a little bit of controversy exactly, but the Old Testament, approximately 1450, by an Old Testament scholar, rabbi, actually. And in 1550, the New Testament verses were added. It wasn't until 1560 that the first English Bible was published with both chapters and verses. And that was the Geneva Bible. For any, If anybody wants to, you know, wow your friends at a party, you can ask the, the question, what did the pilgrims bring, what Bible did the pilgrims bring with them to the new country in, in America? It was not the King James Bible. They didn't like the king. This is why they left. They brought the Geneva Bible. That was the Bible they had with them and what they were were studying at the time. So a little bit of trivia here for you to remember that the chapter breaks we see in our text are not part of what Paul wrote. He didn't put a big number two and then start writing for the second chapter. So there's thought processes that get broken up when we're studying the scripture because we are, you know, we tend to look at the chapter breaks as if it's part of the, uh, the text itself. And on top of that, because we need help, um, Bible publishers will often add in subtitles in the text to help you get an idea of what the theme is, and it breaks it up even more. (coughs) I make the argument that there is no break between chapter 1 and chapter 2 of Colossians. They actually merge together with some key words, like the word mystery. They are repeated in end of chapter 1 and in the first part of chapter 2. So with that in mind... We're going to start our lesson today on chapter 1, verse 28. I'll read the first verse just to give you uh, a running start. 
Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. First thing that you should notice is what word is used three times. Everyone. Everyone. Doesn't mean just people wearing a red scarf in Sunday school. It doesn't mean people who have white hair. It doesn't mean men. It doesn't mean women. It doesn't, it's everyone. Jew, Greek, everyone. Paul proclaims Christ. Him we proclaim. And then he is trying to warn everyone that he comes in contact with and teaching everyone so that everyone can be presented as mature in Christ. If you're taking notes, the word mature is the Greek word teleon or teleos, which is what we call our adult Sunday school and adult learning category in our church. It's to be mature, to be complete in Christ. Now, Sam Storms has a wonderful book, Meditations on Colossians, and he wrote this. He says, many of today's churches would write this verse differently. This is how they would write this verse today. Him we only mention in passing, lest we offend people or sound excessively religious. Rather than warning or teaching, we want to please and entertain everyone so they might feel good about themselves and be reassured that all is well in the world. That is the gospel of the world. The gospel of Christ is to warn, to teach, and to present complete in Christ. We tend to make that sound so horrible. It's not. And the word proclaim is to proclaim publicly. He went into the marketplace. Wherever he went, he would be proclaiming this message to everyone. No exceptions. Not just for the smart people. Not just for the right people. The next time you really get upset about someone or some idea, pray for them. Don't just get angry at them. That's the easy thing to do. The hard thing to do is to pray for them and to say, Lord, please help open their eyes to the right teaching. And then he goes on. Verse 29, for this, and the this is what's in verse 28, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So he's working at this. (coughs) He's struggling with this. And I wrote here in my notes, I said, being faithful When those around you say you are being judgmental, intolerant, or unforgiving, and even unchristian, isn't that the ultimate 
thing that's thrown in your face. Oh, you believe that? Well, that's not very Christian of you. Let's stop the conversation right now and let's define what Christian means. You obviously have a different understanding of what that means than I do. I believe in the Word of God. You believe it means to not offend people and entertain me and make me feel good about myself. There's a difference. But being faithful in the light of that is hard work. It's a toil. But you don't do it on your own strength. Notice how this verse is constructed. For this I toil, struggling with all whose energy? Not my energy. It's not the word my. That I powerfully work within me. Paul is not saying that he's doing this on his own strength. If you remember other verses, verse 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul wrote, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. 1 Corinthians 4.12 says, When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we reply gently. This is something we cannot do on our own. You think it's you, but it's not you. It is His energy and His powerful work within you. And so I had to ask myself the question, well, what power? What kind of power are we talking about here? Hmm. Well, that's actually found in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the heavenly places. This is the power that raises the dead. And we go, oh yeah, I got Christ's power in me. <sighs> no, this is a big deal. Paul is not saying something and casting off a verse here just in a, oh, yeah, yeah, I toil hard and I struggle with it. No, he's trying to teach in this moment. When you are struggling, when you are toiling, it's not your own strength. And here's one way to look at it. And I can attest to this. If you believe it's to your own strength, you will fail. And then you will get depressed. You will get discouraged. You'll go, oh, you know, I really I just can't do this anymore. I quit. Guess who won that battle? It's the enemy. The enemy is trying to take that away from you because you're trying to do it on your own strength. It doesn't mean you don't work hard. 
but it's not your strength that's doing the work. And he continues in the next sentence. Yes, I know it's the next chapter. But in the next sentence, he writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle, here's that word again, I have, notice that's present tense, not I had, I have for you, that's the people in Colossae, and for those at Laodicea, and for all those who have not seen me face to face. Now if you remember our geography, Colossae is 10 miles from Laodicea. There was a kind of a three town area in this valley, and it's 100 miles, let's see, you're facing me, so it's 100 miles east of Ephesus. So that's the area we're in. Laodicea is familiar to us because of Revelation 2 and 3. It's one of the seven churches of Revelation that Jesus talks about. But it says here, I want you to know how great a struggle, by the way, the Greek word for struggle there is agon, A-G-O-N. Add a Y to that word. That's where we get the word agony, is from this word to struggle. Agon, agony. They use, the Greeks use this word in describing athletic contests. And I thought, huh, okay, however, how many of you have ever been in any form of sports where you had to train for it? Okay, about half the room. Would you call the training fun and enjoyment and happiness all the time? Oh no, it's agon. It's an agony. Especially when the coach tells you at the end of the practice, now it's time for the, the sprint drills. Now we are exhausted. Our basketball coach, he would set us all up in a line at the free throw line. And we had to make eight consecutive free throws. Eight of us had to make one. And if anybody missed, we're on the full length of the court, full speed. Then we go line up again. And until we made eight in a row, we couldn't go home. Which meant we got more and more tired. Which made it harder to shoot the free throws. And we were so mad at him. In fact, true, true story, we used his name as a curse word. His last name was King. And so if something went bad in, the, in, in practice, go, ah, King. You know, it was just wonderful Christian school. Um, the thing was, when it came time in the game, at the end of the game, we weren't tired. And we could shoot free throws when the other team was exhausted. But the agony to get to that point, the work to get to that point, was a struggle. But we knew there was an end game to it. Well, let's look at this. What struggle is he having? Almost all scholars, all teachers, pretty much believe that Paul is talking about prayer. 
his prayer for the people in Colossae, the people in Laodicea, and all of those who he has never met. Now when we pray for our missionaries and our persecuted church, I bet there's many of these missionaries none of you have ever met. They might have visited here at some point, but you'd have to be here a long time to have met them all. And we certainly don't know who these people are. But we're praying for them. I look at this and I say, I actually wrote here, do we feel any urgency or fervency for those that we do not know? That we have never met? There are moments where I don't know what comes over me, but I will look at, say, a football stadium full of people, or I'll be at a store and there's just masses of humanity in the store, and I'm thinking, look at all those lost people. They have no idea the joy of Christ. And you begin to get a little overwhelmed by the mass of humanity. And so you think, well, what, what's my prayer worth? You know, it's just, I mean, God really doesn't care about Steve Lobby. No, God cares about Steve Lobby. God cares that Steve Lobby cares. And it's working on my heart when I am praying for others. See, that's one of the beauties of prayer. It's this uplifting, but it's also the change within that occurs when you are praying for others. I said it's a little like the athletic contest. If you don't struggle in prayer, your muscle will atrophy. And then when you need it, it doesn't work. That's a poor metaphor, sorry, uh, because I'm not talking about the agency and the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer, so just roll with me for a moment. I'm the teacher, you have to. Okay, but just think about it. If you don't use the gift that you have, it atrophies. Just like someone who's bedridden. I was bedridden for four days last week. I thought if this happened for 40, I'd have a hard time getting up and walking. So when you think about the struggle in prayer, there's a great example of a prayer warrior by the name of David Brainerd. David Brainerd is somewhat legendary, I could say, in circles related to special missionary work. In the 1720s or so, he had graduated from the university and decided he'd been called to the mission field. And this is what's interesting, because his mission field were, were the Native Americans of New Jersey and New York. And you think, New Jersey, New York? I mean, it's all freeways. Well, not in 1700 it wasn't. He actually, in his first five or six years of ministry, 
rode on his horseback 3,000 miles going from town to town, place to place, ministering to Native Americans, setting up churches in an extraordinary ministry in his 20s. Then he got sick, extremely sick, (coughs) to the point where he had to leave the mission field and uh, basically come back to Boston and he was in someone's home for about three or four months and then they needed to give him better care and so moved him to another house. That house was the house of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards, one of the most famous theologians, reformers of the time, he was the president of Yale when Yale was a Christian university. And he spent David Brainerd spent his many months trying to recover in Jonathan Edwards' home. He was 29 years old. The daughter of Jonathan Edwards, who was 17, was the one who nursed him the most. And as the story goes, you could tell young love began to build and there was this wonderful burgeoning love story that was happening and then David Brainerd died of tuberculosis at the age of 29. The unknown story of this is four months later she died of tuberculosis because she got it from him nursing him. Now I tell all that story to say oh that's a sad story but David Brainerd's testimony was so powerful Jonathan Edwards found his diary and published it after David Brainerd was gone. And just, this is when he was 23 years old, on April 19th, 1742. He was writing about prayer. In his journal entry he wrote, God enabled me to so agonize in prayer that I was quite wet with sweat, though in the shade, in the cool wind. My soul was drawn out very much for the world. I grasped for multitudes of souls. The next day, he wrote this. Today, I'm 24 years old. Oh, how much mercy I have received the year past. How often God has caused His goodness to pass before me, and how poorly I have answered the vows I made one year since to be holy the Lord's, to be forever devoted to His service. The Lord helped me to live more for His glory for the time come, time to come, and that has been a sweet and happy day to me. Blessed be God. And then this sentence. I think my soul was never so drawn out in intercession for others as it has been this night. I had a most fervent wrestle with the Lord tonight for my enemies. A man totally sold out to God and to Christ at the age of 23, 24 years old, gave his life completely for his service 
and wrestled with prayer. So when you have in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul saying, I have a great struggle. I am praying for you and for your neighbors and for all those people I've never met. And it's kind of sad when you think of Laodicea that a few years later, Jesus declared in Revelations 3.16, O you in Laodicea, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. The prayers must continue. The warning of 128 and the teaching of 128 must continue or you end up with Revelation 3.16. Now there's a comma at the end of verse 1, which is why we don't like verses. Uh, So you must read the sentence. For those who have not seen me face to face, that their cardia, their hearts, may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. To be knit together in agape, the glue that holds it together. Error is divisive. Error separates. Error cuts people off from each other. Agape knits them together. F.F. Bruce, in his commentary on Colossians, put it this way. Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known (coughs) apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. This means that mere intellectual comprehension of the mystery of Christ will not bring full understanding of the mystery, for understanding also comes through the love of Christians for each other. How is this so? Well, when we are loved by other believers, we experience Christ through them, and thus our knowledge of Christ is enhanced. The deepest knowledge of the mystery of Christ comes from both the head and the heart. We must study the scripture about him intensely with all our heart and must love him and his people with all our heart and then we will know as we ought. And that's the message of verse 2. You can have a lot of head knowledge. You can come in here into this class and my style is a little more, oh, I'd say academic if you want to give it that word. It's science for some, it's head knowledge. But it's also heart knowledge. They come together. The idea is to knit them together to grow the body of Christ together. And then verse 3, again, no break, in whom, and the whom is Christ, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ephesians 3.18 calls them the unsearchable riches of Christ. In fact, there's a, uh, a Puritan author named Thomas Brooks 
who wrote a 250-page book called The Unsearchable Riches of Christ. 250-page meditation on Ephesians 3, 18. I was reading part of it and realizing the genius of someone to say, well, imagine, some of you are students, you are given an assignment to write a 500-word essay, 500 words, on Ephesians 3, 18, on the unsearchable riches of Christ. And you, the rest of us, we probably, oh, here are the five things that are the unsearchable riches. And we can create a blog post. Thomas Brooks wrote 50,000 words. And you talk about unsearchable, <laughs> the riches you start reading. I'm sort of reading through this going, how do you even think this way? Because when you steep yourself and immerse yourself in something, you realize it's a vast pool. You will never reach the bottoms of the depths of the beauty of Christ. You will never reach the heights of the beauty of Christ. As far as the east is from the west, you will never comprehend it. And this is what he's talking about here. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Again, my notes I wrote here, there's a tendency for us to look elsewhere for wisdom and knowledge. The latest fad. I remember when the prayer of Jabez was a bestseller. And the thing was to pray the prayer of Jabez every day. And that was the magic elixir. That was the formula. That was the magic words that would expand your borders and give you all the blessings of God. How silly is that? It's an interesting concept, but not to make it a mantra as if this is the only thing we need to be doing. Or those who want to study the Enneagram. Okay, that's an interesting method to think about the spiritual life in different categories. Or in the secular market right now, there's a real resurgence of Stoicism. There's an author out there who has done an incredible job in making the Stoics very exciting. And people are reading Marcus Aurelius for the first time. And they're reading his daily, the daily Stoic as their meditation. You can get the app on your phone and read that instead of this. We seem to think that if we tack something else onto the gospel, we'll find the new hidden mystery. A new program, a new wish, a fresh light. Anything except having to study the Word of God. Because this isn't enough. Or it's boring. Or it's, it's too hard. As if the secret to fulfillment and purpose can be found somewhere else other than Christ. And here, Paul is declaring all. All the treasures can be found in Christ alone. 
Daniel 2.22, it is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Verse 4. He continues, I say this. Well, what is the this? Which means what he has said before, which he's talking about Christ and all and everything together. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Huh. That kind of came out of left field, didn't it? Well, not really. Didn't he say in verse 28, we proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone? I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. There's a story of a church in England that had a sign on the front of the building that read, We preach Christ crucified. And after time, Ivy grew up and obscured the last word. And so it read, We preach Christ. And the Ivy grew some more. And the motto then read, We preach. And after time, they failed to cut down the Ivies, and pretty much there was nothing there. And the church died with it. When you don't preach Christ crucified, when you don't preach Christ, when you stop preaching, there's nothing left. It's going to all die. For those of you who are either History Channel watchers or interested in World War II, do you remember when they created fake tanks and planes in England? So that when the German planes flew over, they would go, oh my goodness, look at all those tanks. Oh, look at all those planes. Oh, they're all massing on that part of the island. That means they're going to invade here. But when you got up close, and you can go look up and see the pictures, they're like, you know, straw man, you know, and plywood with little turrets stuck on them to look like airplanes and, or look like tanks and airplanes. It was plausible. It was a deception. It was a delusion. And the plausible argument in the Greek, the Greek word there is pithonologia. Pithono means to convince by argument and logia means logic. So a logic or a reasonable argument. I have seen debates between theologians and atheists that are really quite extraordinary to observe. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, when he was alive, was quite an 
amazing debater, and he loved going into Christian situations and trying to undercut the Christian faith, calling it a big delusion. And his, his main theory is that religion is dangerous of any form. I wonder what he thinks now, <laughs> since he died a few years ago. Anyway, um, <clears throat> but he was so convincing. He's so smart. I mean, I'm sorry. I, I'd like to think I'm rather intelligent, but he would just fillet me if we'd ever gotten a debate. There's just no way. I, I, not smart enough. That's scary. Because there's a lot of very smart people out there who do not have good designs. And they can be very convincing. What's even scarier, you know, us old people are really confused by artificial intelligence and its growth, especially with visual argument. I mean, when Photoshop first came out and the idea that you could take someone's picture and move it in a scene and it looked real, especially if they were very good at it, kind of going, huh, all right, well, now it's simply called a tool yeah. in every designer's toolbox. But now a computer does it without human agency and it looks so real. I think there's a, um, a current lawsuit that some company created advertisements using Taylor Swift's image holding up a product. And they ran it on Twitter and a whole bunch of other places. She never did that commercial. She was never paid for it. But it looked so real, the sales for that product went... <laughs> so they're probably going to be happy to pay the legal fees, because they will still come out ahead. <laughs> How do we know what's real? <coughs> you can't trust your eyes. You can't trust your ears. You can't trust the person who's saying it to you. Don't I sound cynical? <laughs> yeah. It's a little scary. I even wrote the words here. Would doubting Thomas still doubt? Even with Jesus right in front of him? How firm are you in the faith? How much effort are you taking to discern what's being thrown at you? Every day. It's overwhelming. And especially when the culture can come at you and if you state something like there's such a thing as a man and a woman, you can lose your job. There's a new book coming out by Aaron Wren. I got our copies. We represent his work, and it's coming out in a couple months. I'll show it to you when I can. You can actually buy it. Right now you can't buy it. Um, but he's talking about how, how do we as Christians interact with a culture that not only doesn't listen, but they use a hammer in their reply. Yeah. How do we do this? How do we 
interact? How do we present the faith in such a uh, let's see antagonistic world? And here you have Paul. Look, I want you to be warned. I want you to know so that you won't be deluded by plausible arguments. And boy, are they enticing. Because it just sounds so loving. Verse 5. Verse 5 starts with the same language that you find in 1 Corinthians 5.3. For though I am absent in body, I am with you in spirit. And the word here, rejoicing, I actually crossed it out and wrote the word smile. I'm smiling. To see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. And so then in my notes I wrote to the side, good order. What does that mean? I mean, it is the Greek word taxis, T-A-X-I-S, not E-S. It's not taxes, it's taxis. Like taxidermy or taxonomy. That is the ordering of names, is taxonomy. Taxidermy is the ordering of skin. It is a order. So that's the Greek word. But what is he talking about? And I'm going to not answer it. I'm going to see if you guys can figure this one out. He goes, I'm rejoicing, I'm smiling, to see your good order. Now, you may have a different translation that will answer the question for you, but this is what the ESV has it as. Anybody? What is good order? Is it like saying you have your tracks straight? Mm, that would be my thought for it, and yet, why didn't he say that? I mean... Taxis is actually a military term for soldiers lined up in order. You know, everything in its proper place. Everything is moving correctly. Is there a spiritual context context here? Yeah. Uh, I, I guess because we're reading over and over here in Christ mm-hmm. that um, they would be standing in this mystery behind Christ. Because um, okay. I, I can't help but see how 28 through 3 lines up so closely with um, 1, 9 through 13. Yes. In, in the order that they put them in. Yes. This understanding that we've been delivered from the dominion of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. The New American Standard uses the word discipline instead of order. Now that creates a different meaning in our term because we think of uh, being disciplined or being a disciple or you know reading your Bible every day or doing something right. I think it's a broader picture, kind of what you're trying to say, is that he's saying, I am smiling because I see that your church is doing the right things in the right way. 
but there are dangers around you, which is why he's warning about plausible arguments, and why when we start in verse 8 and following, he starts talking about the heresies that are in the church. So he's appreciative of their, not their good behavior, but their, I guess, getting their facts straight, getting their doctrine right. I even wrote here, is this talking about daily habits of holiness? Is this talking about sound doctrine? But also, don't forget, there's an and in the verse. And the firmness of your faith, the stability, the steadfastness, the resoluteness to being solid, not flashy. So there's this idea that they're working at their faith and learning what is needed. Charles Barkley writes about these two words, Well, You have the word taxis and the word stereoma for firmness. It prevents a vivid picture because they're both military words. The word taxis means rank or ordered arrangement. So the church should be like an ordered army with every person in their appointed place, ready and willing, ready and willing to obey the word of command. The word stereoma means a solid bulwark, an immovable, immovable phalanx. It describes an army set out in an unbreakable square, solidly immovable against the shock of an enemy's charge. Within the church, there should be disciplined order and a strong steadiness, like the order and steadiness of a trained body of troops. Did you mean William Barclay? Hmm? Did you mean William Barclay? What did I say? Charles, Charles. Barclay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't look that up. Like, huh. Yeah, Charles Barclay did not write that. <laughs> oh my goodness. The great theologian. Thank you. Yeah, the great theologian. <laughs> wow. Yeah, thank you for correcting that. Yeah, nothing like putting it on recording and throwing it out into the world. Yes, Charles Barkley is a great theologian. You know, he is one of the only... I use him as, as an example in my classes uh, about ghostwriters because after his autobiography came out, he very, very publicly set it aside saying it misquoted him. <laughs> it's your autobiography, man. Didn't you read it? Anyway, so that's another story. Sorry, thank you for the uh, embarrassing correction. Let's just move on. Okay. <clears throat> wow. I watched way too much basketball when I was sick. <laughs> Okay, verses 6 and 7. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk with him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And we've talked before about the idea of walking, and we'll do more of it later. I, I want to just step to the, actually, verse 7, the idea of being rooted and built up and established in the faith. That metaphor kind of stuck with me as I was meditating on this. The idea of being rooted. Um, 
We have a lot of examples here in, in the Phoenix area in particular when the various windstorms that come in and they can topple a tree and you might drive by it and you see the tree on the ground and the roots have been uprooted. Partly this can happen if the root system isn't wide enough for the height of the tree. It has roots, but it didn't go wide enough. So when the wind hit it, knocked it over, and the roots came up with it. We had a situation in our home, backyard. How many years ago was it, 16? It was 2008, August, of the 100 mile windstorms that hit Phoenix, the Kennel Park, everywhere. How many years ago was that? Like 15 or so. 15, 16 years ago. So Lisa and I are playing a game on our dining room table. The wind is going to howling. We just had our anniversary and I had food poisoning this first time. Yeah, it was just a wonderful evening. <laughs> um, and we hear this whoop. Like, what was that? And so I go to the uh, kitchen window and I open it and there are branches in the window of our porch. Um, don't worry about it. <laughs> Anyway, we had a 35, 40 foot tree come down in the backyard. Now, the roots were still on the ground. It lifted the tree up, twisted it, and then snapped it off at the base and threw it on the ground. Now that tells me those roots are really good roots. <laughs> and that this wind was really strong because the tree, uh, you could not put your arms around it. Okay, this is a big tree. Oh, they took just even a slab, this, this, the width was like this high, and a slab they had to take cranes over the house, and one time they were worried because it was at 2,000 pounds. It was just this much. Yeah, the final, the final cut of the of the tree when they were on getting rid of it was 2,000 pounds. A stump was about this tall. I mean, this was not a small tree. But it lifted up, twisted it, snapped it, and dropped it in the one place in the backyard where uh, it took out our porch, but it didn't hit the house. If it had gone the other direction, it probably would have killed our neighbors. Because, it, I mean, it would have just knocked that house down. If it had gone the other direction, it would hit the other neighbor. Instead, it went in between two trees in our backyard, the one spot. Anyway. The Lord says there. But to be rooted and built up, those roots were so strong, they didn't move. Now, granted, the metaphor completely falls apart because the tree died. But my point is, if you are rooted, and this is the same thing, if you have mature trees in your backyard and you don't thin them periodically, you put your tree in danger of being knocked down by the wind. So you have to, even as a tree who is well-rooted, you might have to be pruned. Life may have to come at you. God may have to bring something into your life. 
and weed out pieces so that when the wind hits, it goes through and around and not against. And you can withstand anything. The other trees we have, I always wonder, are these other trees going to come down? Well, we're constantly, every few years, we have the the tree monkeys climb up there and zip around and clean the stuff out and so the tree will blow no matter how the wind it won't knock them down they are well rooted and well tended the world can be brutal Satan is relentless and indefatigable Satan never gets tired. Your soul has been planted by grace and nurtured in the soil of Christ's unchanging love. Your hope is grounded. Therefore, you are established in the faith. And the word established for the, in the Greek is a legal contract. It's a legal binding agreement between two parties. It's almost like a contract of ownership. We are His. And He is ours. I'm going to end with a thought coming back to this idea in these verses, especially in verse 6 where it says, As you received Christ the Lord, so walk with Him. John MacArthur wrote this many years ago. Actually, 20 years ago. You come to Christ, you receive the forgiveness of sins. You come to Christ, you receive a new nature a new disposition, a new heart that loves righteousness. You come to Christ and you die to the past and you rise to new life. You come to Christ and you're delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. You come to Christ and you literally come to the truth that transcends the truth you will never find anywhere except in the Word of God. And even this truth you will never understand until the Spirit of God takes up residence and becomes your teacher. And then you will know the deep things of God. It's all in Christ. All truth, all wisdom, all knowledge, all understanding, all peace, all joy, all value, all fulfillment, all satisfaction, all purpose, all deliverance, all strength, all comfort, and all eternal hope is in Christ. To have Him is to have everything. Not to have Him is to have nothing. And the Bible calls this the unsearchable riches of Christ. And indeed they are. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you for our time together, for letting us have a chance to explore your word. These few verses that seemingly are repetitive, yet we are so in need of hearing it again and again and again. In you is everything. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.